Good evening, listeners. It's May 7th, Sunday, and you're tuned into 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It is currently just after 7 p.m. and on a Sunday that can mean only one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Lillian Padgett-Cobb. And I am Adrian Gallo. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in, or- in over 80 different programs of study. And here in Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out all about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration, where you can find out all about our upcoming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and should they occur... Any opinions expressed on the show are those of the host and their guests and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or this station. Tonight, we are joined by Richard Dial, a master's student from the Department of Nuclear Science and Engineering. He is studying radiation health physics in a skeletal biology lab. Hey, Richard. Hello. You go ahead and tell us a little bit about what you do. So I am looking at the effects of ionizing radiation on the skeletal system and investigating how well we can recover the bone after being exposed to lethal doses of radiation. Hmm. So what sort of situations would you expect someone to be exposed to this lethal radiation? So more often than not, this is used to ablate or to essentially destroy Cells in uh, patients who have diseases such as leukemia, um, but other situations could occur in sort of nuclear accidents where uh, accidental exposure to a lethal dose of radiation could occur. And, And here on Earth, we have a nice electromagnetic field that protects us, but what happens for astronauts? Uh, they have about a few centimeters of aluminum. They're in a, a soda pop can. <laughs> so presumably the effects of radiation that astronauts can feel or see, especially if we plan on going to Mars, can have similar detrimental effects. Yes, exactly. Uh, the sun sometimes produces what are called solar particle events, and you can see these occurring when uh, you see at the, you look at the sun, you see these coronial mass ejections, but they're essentially a, a large amount of matter that is being shot off and off of the surface of the sun, and if that is directed towards Earth at the time that astronauts are in space without this magnetic field and without sufficient amount of atmosphere to protect them, they're now being exposed to uh, levels of radiation that you would never, you would only see in such, such instances such as nuclear accidents on Earth. So or, the work you're doing has an application all the way from, from Mars astronauts to current cancer patients. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. So what you're looking at, though, is skeletal biology. So can you tell us a little bit about the bone marrow that you're studying? So you're actually doing something super interesting where you're injecting bone marrow? Yes. Okay. So the bone is essentially compromised of uh, two types of bone. You have your cortical bone, which provides your structural strength, and you also have your cancellous bone, which also hosts um, 
essentially the production of your immune system and your your blood forming cells. So um, your bone marrow is where your bo- your your blood cells are formed and many other cells that are associated with what is called the hemopoietic system, as well as many cells that are a part of your immune system. So the cells that we are ejecting back into these mice actually can f- restore the immune system of the recipient as well as restore hematopoiesis or uh, the production of blood cells and and other cells associated with the hemopoietic system. And let's break this down a little bit because the hemopoietic system can, or I'm sorry, hemopoietic cells can, they really are very adaptable and flexible because they can eventually uh, divide and become red blood cells. Exactly. Blood platelets and white blood cells. So basically what we need to breathe uh, what we need to stop bleeding if we got a cut, and basically our immune system. So if so, you know this is kind of like the base analog for a lot of other cells, and it's all kind of happening in bone marrow. Yes, and, and what's also fascinating is what constitutes healthy bone in terms of its strength doesn't necessarily just solely rely on these hemopoietic cells or what we what are called hemopoietic stem cells. It relies on other stem cells, but we're finding that injecting just these hemopoietic stem cells back actually has a role in whether or not the bone is able to grow at a at a at a what would be a normal rate for a healthy individual or a, or a healthy mouse in this case. <laughs> um, and so it's it's quite fascinating the fact that it's uh, it's sort of tissue engineering. You're you are literally giving this mouse a new immune system. Um, because if you don't, they're lethally irradiated, and it's it's easy to tell if the transplantation doesn't go through, as they they will not survive. Um, yeah. So let's take this back from instead of the tissue viewpoint, let's take this back to a patient treatment standpoint, because I think, like you had mentioned, mm-hmm. the primary role of of doctors and or the the primary objective for doctors in treating cancer patients is to get their immune system back up to back well, up to so level. Well, so if you have leukemia, you have cancerous cells in your bone marrow. And so typically what is used to treat leukemia patients is either a, a concoction or a mixture of chemotherapy and radiotherapy or strictly just chemotherapy or radiotherapy. And so the objective of it is to kill off all the cancerous cells that are currently residing in the bone marrow and then replenishing the bone marrow with healthy bone marrow cells that then can completely restore the function that the bone marrow and the bone is playing. I think really key here is that healthy bones do not necessarily correspond to strong bones. No. Yeah. Not at all. There's several parameters. What is most often used is what's called bone mineral density. Um, And that doesn't necessarily say if you have a high bone mineral density, you have a healthy tissue. Generally, that's the case. But there are also there are also times where people have normal or just there's a natural selection in between humans of bone mineral densities, and so. Um, so yeah, so let, let me get to this point. It is that you know when we're or as a patient, you can have a healthy and responsive. Um, I guess immune system, right? So from a cancer standpoint, if you can remain healthy and your your internals in terms of, you know, not getting sick all the time, 
you know, that is a major hurdle that we can often get to. But what is not often looked at is the uh, the after effects of what happens to your bone mineral density. So in this case, you could have very weak bones and fragile bones, but more often than not, that's uh, a consequence we're willing to deal with for a good reason of trying to save the patient, right? But the work you're doing is also looking specifically at can we restore the strength of these bones or, you know, looking at what what can make these bones stronger, what the mechanism is. Yeah, we want to improve the quality of life. I mean, it, people who typically have leukemia are children, and so now you're talking about a child growing up, so are they not going to grow as tall as they might have if they didn't have leukemia? Are they not going to be as athletic, or are they are they going to be limited to what they can do Maybe not in their immediate lifetime, but in their in the in their longer lifetime, um, are they going to be able to live as long? Is their quality of life hindered by not being able to replenish the bone uh, to its normal function? And it is. You, if you are at a higher risk of fracture, that just might mean you accidentally fall once, and that's all it takes. Yeah, I I was mountain biking earlier today, and I took a very easy fall. But I imagine if I had a low bone density or you yeah, know maybe. osteoarthritis or something, it probably would not have ended up as well, and I probably would not have been mountain biking in the first place. No, um, it, typically what is it's called osteoporosis, it, um, the degradation of bone, and uh, it's osteoporosis is. Not necessarily a concern for most people, but it's a concern especially for postmenopausal women who have higher rates of bone loss as they age. And so now if you're talking about a leukemia patient who is a, a female and now she's inevitably going to have postmenopause and have this higher loss of bone loss later in life, how quickly is she or how quickly are, is the bone, how much weaker will the bone be as compared to somebody who didn't have that's have leukemia in their early childhood. One thing I'm curious about is how you actually perform these, how these experiments are performed. And it seems like there is a possibility of either injecting the whole bone marrow or the purified hematopoietic stem cells. And is there an advantage to one or the other? Well, that's what we're trying to find out. See, um, when we inject whole bone marrow back, we're injecting 5 million cells approximately back in. And they're like cells of all different kinds. Yeah. The idea, though, is that in these 5 million cells, there's some hematopoietic stem cells that are going to be doing their job. Um, And that requires them finding a place in the bone is where it's optimal for them to begin proliferating or begin dividing into these more mature cells. Uh, And so... When we purify these stem cells, you're only talking about a few hundred to a few thousand cells now. and Instead of five million. Instead of five million. Now, probably in that five million, there's only a few hundred, a few thousand hematopoietic stem cells. Mm. Um, and so physically, are, are, they, are these, all these other cells getting in the way, or are they playing a vital role that might be necessary for full recovery? Um, in this I guess that's what hasn't really been looked at is can the bone recover better just with purified stem cells or purified hematopoietic stem cells or 
is it all these cells that are in the bone marrow that are playing a role? And then the the way you're trying to find out how the bone marrow transplant has an effect on bone is by using uh, a certain protein, right? Yes, it's a GFP or green fluorescent protein. And these proteins are used all throughout biology. Yeah. Uh, Lily, do you have do you have uh, an example of one? I, I'm I'm blanking, but there we've had a couple guests on that yeah. I've used. Uh, and it allows you to visualize inside cells where you wouldn't otherwise be able to visualize them. And it also acts as a tracer, like a bookmark. Yeah. So yeah. if I give you, you know, a couple French fries, I can find those French fries eventually ending up in like your toes or yeah. your hair or something. Uh oh. <laughs> we call it a cell tracking experiment. And the reason why we want to track these cells is we want to see, is it the hematopoietic stem cells that we inject back into the mouse? Are they the ones that are responsible for the recovery of the bone and the bone marrow? Or is the body, the body's hematopoietic stem cells that the mouse had before being irradiated, are they playing a role as well? Now, the doses that we're delivering, we're expecting to pretty much knock out 90 to 95% of the hematopoietic stem cells. So by doses, you mean the radiation that sure. you're applying? Yes, okay. the radiation exposure that these mice have been a... Uh, um, so that, so at, at, after this radiation exposure, we can almost safely say that they have near zero homopoietic stem cells. Yeah, they, there's these terms called the LD50, the LD90, which is the lethal dose to kill 50% of the population or the lethal dose to kill 90% of the population. Now with a, a human, the amount of radiation it takes to kill a human is different than the amount of radiation it takes to kill a mouse. And so we're delivering what would be to a human a lethal dose or a greater than a lethal, a, a very, uh, it would be, essentially the LD99. Wow. <laughs> and for these mice, it is the the, the LD9099 as well, where if, if we don't inject these bone marrow cells back into these mice, they're surely going to die. So if you're just joining us, you're listening to Inspiration Dissemination on KBVR Corvallis. We are speaking to Richard Dial, and he is just describing exactly how he performs some of his research on bone marrow transplants and especially its effects on uh, on how bone structure can be affected following uh, the purification of what we call or what he calls homo- homopoietic stem cells, which are really the kind of baseline cells that will eventually help to produce red blood cells, white blood cells, um, essentially how how your body carries oxygen mm-hmm. and, <laughs> and and everything else. So uh, c- continue describing. Uh, you have now given this 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 mice almost a lethal or a very lethal dose of radiation and then you're then going to replace the bone marrow that was there which um, especially the homopoietic stem cells which are no longer functional because they're dead uh, and replace them with either the purified version that that you're experimenting with and also the whole bone marrow so what happens then well so at least i want to backtrack there's um, a syndrome what's called acute radiation syndrome in acute meaning short-term. So when you're exposed to a large amount of radiation, what are the short-term effects? And the first term, the first effect is the hemopoietic syndrome, where these hemopoietic stem cells die, and now you have loss of your blood being produced and your immune system being produced. And so what we're trying to do is prevent, prevent that, obviously. Um, but 
we're not just irradiating the bone. We're talking about irradiating the the total mouse. So it's a, called a total body irradiation. So there's other things that are at play. Their brain is irradiated, their lungs, their mm-hmm. all their organs. And so they're all in releasing these stress um, uh Stress hormones, probably. Uh, well, they're, you know, they're undergoing a very stressful condition. Not, it's not very often you would be exposed to this kind of uh, uh, modality that would induce something like Total this. Total body organ shutdown. <laughs> yes. Um, but so what we're really curious in is how do, you, how do you analyze this bone now that you've injected these cells? We wait two months to see how well they recover. If they survive, that obviously is a good thing. But now we're talking about is their quality of life for these mice hindered? And so I, I just want to – so two months, can you tell us what is that in a human – what is that in human terms? So there's um, – I'm not really so sure where it started, if it's in a review paper or something. But a mouse is considered an accelerated age model – for a human, and so what you would expect in a in a mouse, what would happen in a month for a mouse, you would expect approximately would happen for a human in seven years. Wow. Okay. And this doesn't necessarily hold true because if you're now talking about a two-year-old mouse, you're talking about a hundred fifty-something-year-old human, <laughs> and I haven't seen anyone that old. But so when they're when you're talking about young mice, this generally holds true. Okay. Um, and you see this. You see this at conferences, people talking about this. And, uh, and so the mice that we had, when we first bought our mice, they were eight weeks old. So we're talking about very young, growing mice. Um, and we irradiate them. We wait another eight weeks. So now we're talking about four-month-old mice. They're still relatively young. Typical mouse lifespan is two years. And so... The reason why we are interested in young mice is because we're interested in young humans who, you know, have leukemia typically that that would receive this kind of treatment. And then depending on what uh, what you're finding with the bone mineral density or, or how that bone is reforming or not, you can kind of develop a, a, a trajectory of, of, of where it can go, correct? Yeah, so there's the two techniques that are mainly used is histomorphometry, and using what is called a microcomputed tomography. Histomorphometry is the gold standard for measuring bone reconstitution or measuring literally how many cells are in this bone marrow, what type of cells are in these bone marrow. Is, uh, are they, is there, are there, so a problem with radiation exposure is that your body actually starts producing more fat cells in your bone. Okay. And so... So then you need Does to this, identify and count which cells are there. Yeah. That's, hmm. Remind me what the term of this was? Histomorphometry. Histomorphometry. It's and a, what was the second one? Uh, microcomputed tomography. So microcomputed tomography is used for, to mainly measure bone architecture, so which a is really a really cool map. It's a three-dimensional uh, data analysis, whereas with histomorphometry, you take a, a really thin slice of bone, you put it through some sort of stain where your cells are now expressing some color um, and hopefully it's a different color than the other cells so that you can distinguish between the two. And then you shine light through under a microscope and you can then count the cells. Where with microcomputed tomography, you don't 
take small slices of bone. You take the whole bone, put it into a uh, a, a pre-made cylinder shape, um, and you then stick it into this machine that uses dual uh, two types of energy or two energies of photons or two energy types of radiation to be able to distinguish between calcified tissue such as bone versus soft tissue such as muscle. So I'm going to ask you the hard question. Yes. Uh, you're describing to us exactly how you can go about understanding whether or not bone is uh, is, is being developed at it, maybe at a higher rate or at a similar rate or, or maybe not developing at all following these treatments. So I'm, I'm going to ask you, what are your initial findings with the differences between injecting uh, whole bone marrow versus just the purified version of homopoietic stem cells, or is it still too early to tell? Well, what we're finding at least is that what I conclude to you right now is that the rate, the rate that the mice, the exposure that the mice receive or the total amount of radiation the mice receive plays a vital role in how quickly the bone can recover. But bone is recovering. Bone is recovering. Which is really, really exciting for, you know, what lies ahead. So we did two different types. We did a single fractionation of what is nine gray, which in um, gray is a a unit of measurement of total radiation exposure uh, or dose. It is... um, Joules over kilograms is the more fundamental SI unit. But so what what that is is uh, what you would cl- more see in a nuclear accident scenario, whereas the other group that received a fractionated exposure of 5 gray in a two time, they received 5 gray twice, so a total of 10 gray now. So we're now talking a larger total dose than the single fractionation of 9 gray, but there was a period of time where the mice was able to recover because 5 gray is a sublethal dose. You're not killing off everything in this mouse. There, It's able to so two start. So really, two really big punches that don't kill you or one really big punch that should definitely kill you? So one punch that should definitely kill you, two punches <laughs> that would kill you if you were not given a bone marrow transplantation. And, and that, would, it, that more is what is seen in uh, medical interventions you don't give them a what and and that and that is known fractionating the dose has a very beneficial aspect to it but so what we're seeing is that fractionating the dose is very beneficial for recovery of the bone um mm. and that's not saying that we don't see recovery in the bone but we're seeing uh, at least better recovery of that if that makes sense the uh um, no, it, it totally makes sense what, and what we're hoping is that these mice go back to what the control group was. Is there? That's sort of that is how we base our data. If the if the bone parameters that indicate bone strength, bone and bone reconstitution, etc., if they are better or at least the same as the control group, then we can say, oh, they fully recovered. Nice. So we don't have very much time left. Um, but I would still like to get into the background of exactly how you got into this work. And you had described uh, where you had grown up and kind of the wonder that had developed from there. So could you take us back a little bit and kind of help us understand why or what got you into radiation biology in the first place? Well, it, I didn't get into radiation biology until like the last two years, but 
<laughs> I was always really interested in physics. I was, in, ge- in more general, always interested in science. Um, where I grew up out in the country, I was able to see the Milky Way very clearly on the summer summer nights, and I would s- often spend times looking out at the stars. And um, and I always just wondered, like, what what else is out there? Are, are humans left to be here on Earth? Is this is this our existence, or is there more to it? And I really think there is more to it. It's, I mean, the way I look at it is how many people die trying to sail across the oceans eventually? Uh, probably millions of people have died over time. And the, uh, you know, space is the next frontier, as they say, just like the oceans were the next frontier back hundreds and hundreds of years ago. So it's a risky, it's a, it's a very risky, uh, uh, explore exploration <laughs> mission, but you know to fully understand how the human body interacts in a new environment, we need to take a look at how it, it how it interacts with radiation, uh, other things in space such as microgravity um, and psychological stress from being apart from everything that you've known. But what what astronauts are exposed to are types of radiation that you wouldn't typically see on earth because of what you were saying earlier the magnetic field and the atmosphere shields us from them and so uh, further these more exotic particles and more exotic energies cause more damage than what what we treated with we we treated our mice with photons and we treated them with photons because they were readily accessible and they are Typically, what you would use in a in a in the medical world to treat most cancers and to treat using radiotherapy, photons are a lot more affordable at this point. But even as a kid, you were very curious and very eager to kind of help this endeavor of future space future space exploration. Which brings me to my next question: of what do you hope to do in the future? So, I'm hoping to. I would love to work for NASA. I would absolutely love for NASA to hire me right now with my master's degree <laughs> and just go right into doing science. But it's not that easy. You have to prove yourself. So you have to get a PhD. And that's actually what you're going to do next. Yes. Right? And I'm waiting to hear back on several opportunities, but um, May 24th, I am flying out to Belgium for a PhD that would be looking at how our immune system is affected in space, which actually correlates quite well with what my research is now because we are essentially ejecting back these hemopoietic stem cells and recovering the immune system. Um, That's not what we're directly interested in my research, but somehow, oh, this interested me. I I have an idea of what you're talking about. There's Um, a lot of overlap there. Yeah, And, and I think that's, you know, you're talking biology, you're, there's always going to be overlap because it's not one organ or one tissue is is playing playing that one role. I mean, every every organ is interconnected in in ways that we're still exploring. Well, in order for us to explore the unknown in, in space, I think we're going to have to wait for you, Richard, to explore the unknown in our bodies. But with that comes the end of our show, and we do like to conclude our show with two traditions. So. Our first tradition is that we would like to hear a piece of advice that you have for another graduate student or yourself before you started all of this and you were just thinking about graduate school. 
I would say never give up. Oftentimes I feel that doctoral students, graduate students feel like they might begin stuck. Their research might not be going exactly how it is planned or you're you're hoping for opportunities that might come around. But I mean, I, I literally went, attended this training course in Belgium last March and I didn't know I was accepted until February 27th. And now I'm sitting here waiting to hear back on an interview for a PhD. So, I mean, I, I guess, I don't know if that's great advice, but <laughs> to just keep try, keep struggling through it. You never know what can happen. Yeah, persistence, right? Yes. <laughs> persistence is key. Yeah. Uh, and our second tradition is we ask our guests for a song of their choosing. So what song is it and why did you choose it? Um, I chose it because uh, last October I attended the Radiation Research Society conference. They had a song, if you could sing it karaoke style, <laughs> and if they if you sang it the best, they would give you $500 to attend the conference the next year. That's a, that's a nice word. And I sang my heart out, <laughs> and I pulled every dance move I knew out, and I did not get accepted. So maybe <laughs> hearing this song again and playing this song again will <laughs> increase my chances of this year. <laughs> Nice. Um, well, we'd like to thank you from the yes. team at Inspiration Dissemination. Um, again, uh, you can hear us every Sunday from 6 to 7 p.m. Uh, and again, thank you, Richard, for coming on, yes. for coming on the yeah, show. Thank Thanks you so for much joining for us. Me. Next is Radioactive by Imagine Dragons. Enjoy. <laughs> 